Hello, everyone, and welcome to Twig 242. Here with me today to dissect all the latest news in the game industry are Philip Black, game economist at Game Economist Consulting. Hey, hey. Jen Donahoe, head of publishing at Startup High Def. Howdy, everyone. Ethan Levy, co-founder at Stealth. Hello. And I'm Laura Taranto, head of new games at Big Fish. Well, 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 look who Phil's catch dragged in. Ethan, where have you been? <laughs> hey, everybody. Great to see you. I know it's been a minute. I've been doing some cool shit, basically. As I said, whenever I was on last, you know, my co-founder and CTO started five weeks ago. We are doing amazing things. I had a third person start just this week. And uh, Laura, as a fellow game team, like on the ground person, if I showed you what the two of us had accomplished in our first month together, you'd be pretty flabbergasted. What, it's the Matchlorette? No. The Matchlorette. <laughs> oh, maybe oh, it is. Oh, oh. Maybe we are doing the Matchlorette. <laughs> I'm just, the progress that we've been able to make in only a month is pretty amazing. And so for me, Mishka's return to the mic was really well-timed because he's going to be taking back a bigger role and I'm going to be kind of on twig. My plan is to be the backup host. I'll still be doing interviews. I just posted an amazing interview with... Jason Kingsley, the co-founder of Rebellion Games, about his book and his career and the founding of Rebellion. Just posted that yesterday. So I'll still be doing interviews probably about two a month. I'll still be on Twig when, like this week, people are too busy. Mishka's like, I'm back, and then immediately on vacation and gone away. What happened to the guy who was so excited to be back on the mic? But anyways, you'll be hearing me less frequently going on because I'm just too busy building cool shit. Well, I'm just glad to have have you back whenever we can get you. Jen, do you have some updates for us? Yes. So in addition to co-hosting with you guys, which has been an absolute pleasure and it's been very fun and very amazing. Thank you again for having me the last few months. It's been so much fun to be here. So I've decided to start a side gig in addition to what I do at HiDev, heading up publishing and marketing my side gig will be a fractional marketing publishing executive or CMO consultant advisor. So I've only ever worked for the big companies in my life, the Riots, the Disneys, the Scopelys, the EAs. So I've wanted for a long time to figure out a way to help smaller, medium-sized companies with publishing and marketing challenges that they might be having. Product marketing is my superpower, as is you know all the other great things in the portfolio of marketing that we have. So if you need any help or you know anyone that needs help, just reach out to me in the Deconstructor Fund Slack channel or on LinkedIn. Happy to help you guys out. So thank you for letting me uh, do a quick shill. The shilling doesn't stop there. I was on David Johansson's podcast, the inaugural episode called Tavern Talks. And if you don't know David, he is the CEO of MetaKing Studios, which is actually making a Web3 game that Eric might even be able to get behind and, and even Ethan too. And I certainly have gotten behind it. They're doing some really cool stuff with transactions, with role play in terms of medieval fantasy. They're actually taking a lot of advantage of the Web3 stuff. We had a great time. I gave Web3 a lot of shit. He gave me a lot of shit. I think it was an awesome conversation. And it might even get close to Ethan's central question of what I actually do. I don't think we quite get there, but I think we get pretty close. I will post an episode in the show notes, a link to the Tavern Talks app. Wait, what do you mean by role play? So he has people set up in different personas within the game. It's a medieval fantasy, so you can become a serf. I thought you meant like on the podcast, like you had to talk about Web3 in, never mind. That's, that's <laughs> Phil's not safe for work and secret podcast. 
There is video. I can confirm we didn't LARP during it, but I think that would have turned up the dial. Oh, so Phil, it might not be role playing, but what's up in cat corner over there in your part of the world? Life is good as a cat dad. Felix is awesome. He goes into a hut. He has this little hut. We call it his little quiet time when he needs to meditate. He has his hut time. And Kaya is even more adorable. She has this little spring she carries around everywhere. She's played catch with me, which is something I didn't expect. Obviously, I'll post more pictures in the Slack channel, which people should definitely join if you have five or more industry, five or more years of industry experience. But yeah, cat life is awesome. If you're looking for something low maintenance, but also fun and more like a dog, get a Norwegian forest cat. Really quick, since we've mentioned it twice, if people want to join the Slack, they have to go to deconstructorfun.com slash Slack to apply. All right. I feel like we should have a scoreboard that says weeks with or without corrections. We have a couple <laughs> corrections this week. <laughs> I think our zero weeks without corrections. I don't think we've ever not had one. It's kind of our trademark. There's been a couple of episodes where we've had zero. Okay. Well, I am here to correct or at least comment on something from an episode I was missing on. So I don't know if that counts as a correction. It, it felt like the appropriate place. But I think two weeks ago, when you all were talking about the new DC hero auto battle game, Phil made a comment in the middle of the response that was like, why didn't Scopely just take Marvel Strike Force and, and clone it with DC? And I actually wanted to chime in here with what is kind of a lengthy answer, because coming from the perspective of a production lead, of a team lead, this is a question that comes up a lot. Can't we just skin it? Can't we just clone it? Can't we just take advantage of the tech that we already have? And I wanted to add some commentary about the challenges and pitfalls of doing that, because just reskin it is never easy. And saying it, I mean, sorry to throw some shade, Phil, but at least I came on to do it. I mean, it's it's kind of a uninformed comment to make as a throwaway, because Scopely should just reskin it is actually quite complicated. So let me repack why. I'm going to be making a lot of assumptions here, because I don't know the Marvel Strike Force code base. I'm just going off of kind of general experience. So if any engineers want to chime in and tell me I was an idiot, please do let me know on the DOF Slack or LinkedIn. So some context. Marvel Strike Force began its life many years ago. I believe it was a collaboration between internal teams at Fox Next and an external studio called Seismic. Now, Scopely acquired Fox Next and the team when it shut down. They did not acquire Seismic. That team was actually eventually acquired by Niantic, and I believe they formed a large part of the LA studio that was shut down a couple weeks ago, unfortunately. But why I'm giving that context is to say, who knows how many of the foundational engineers to this aging code base for Marvel Strike Force are even still at Scopely? Like, who knows what one would need to when starting a new project, right? If you're starting a new project and you're going to want it to last for a decade or more, and you're starting off an old code base, you need to have the people who architected it there in all likelihood to help you make best use of it. Next assumption I'm going to make, let's assume that they're building this game in Unity. I don't remember if this is a Unity game or an internal engine or Unreal, but Unity is a pretty good bet. So what frequently happens with live ops games is that as you're going on year five, year six, year seven, you're limping along with older versions of the engine because upgrading it to new versions, like new stable annual versions, is very time consuming. It's tricky. 
and it's painful and there's little obvious upside for your players. So going from like the 2019 to the 2021 version of Unity might take you four months from some of your best engineers. And at the end of the day, players won't actually see any difference from all that work. So it's entirely likely that let's say they want to do a DC version of Marvel Strike Force today, they might be on a 2021 version of Unity. And if you're starting a new project and it's going to have a 10-year life from the day you start, you absolutely want to get on the most recent stable version of that game engine. And that already is a big effort in itself. Now, invariably, there are going to be some core systems that give your live ops teams and your engineering teams tons of trouble when you have a game that is this old, that's been out and live, and you've got a bunch of people and institutional knowledge that are just working around really annoying problems. And it like is time-consuming for them. There might be people who are hired just for these sorts of issues. And so... If you're starting a new project, you might say something like, we need to redo the skill system to make new hero creation easier and more stable because we're pumping out new heroes all the time and that's what we sell. Or you might need to say, we need to upgrade the offer system in the store so we don't have to do this kludge or that kludge that we're accustomed to working around every week and it's just a constant thorn in our side. And so at the end of the day, when you ask your technical people something like, can we just reskin it? Their analysis is almost always, well, look, we can take this handful of core system server side, and these might be things like leaderboards, gills, offers, daily quests, battle pass, things that are kind of generic metagame systems. So I'd say we can use these handful of core system server side and then use them as the starting point of the game, but we need to upgrade them because of X, Y, and Z reason. And we also need to completely rebuild the client side. And so if you didn't specifically architect a game for a reskin from day one, it's never a clean, easy, simple solution to get a second product out. There are savings, yes, but there's also tons of pitfalls and technical debt. And you're maybe looking at like a 20 or 25% head start, let's say, but your engineers don't like patching on old code as opposed to breaking ground on new code. And they're likely going to be begging you from the start, like, let's just start fresh with a clean code base. And let's not hamstring the foundation of your game with this other project's technical debt. So that long diatribe was like everything going on in my head when I hear just the throwaway comment. Why don't they just license DC and clone it? No, and all that's fair. And I perhaps reskinning was more of a casual term, but we know this happens all the time, right? We know that Game of War was reskinned into Mobile Strike. We know that King has rebranded Candy Crush a million different times. You've got Candy Crush Saga, you got Candy Crush Soda Saga. So you can take those engines. I, I would agree with you. Like the key point is how much are you saving in terms of development time here? What's the marginal cost? And what is the marginal benefit? How much are you going to get by releasing a reskin? So I think that's totally fair that those costs are sizable, but at least there is a declining marginal cost curve. Maybe it's 25%, maybe it's 50%, but it still is something. I'm slightly triggered by the reskin comment on King. I, in my opinion, none of those games are reskins. Yeah, there's a big difference between using the brand on a new game and reskinning a game. But you've got experienced engineers that have worked on the, no. the project. Phil, They've no. got fit. Phil, no. <laughs> you think there's no skill transfer carryover between working on a prior version of Candy and working on a new version of Candy? I'm not saying there's no skill transfer, but it's the same skill transfer as if you hire a game engineer from another company, right? Like building Candy Crush Soda Saga 
having been the company that built Candy Crush, like you're not starting with a ton of stuff when you start Candy Crush. So sorry, Laura, you were on the ground. You can comment on this way better than I can. This is how I view if you're going to be making multiple games in the same area. The hardest thing, in my opinion and in my experience, is if you don't do the upfront work to decide what game you're going to build and what problems you're going to solve and what you're going to do for players. That iteration time takes the longest. Where I think King has an edge is that they had Candy Crush. They learned a lot from that. They were able to, from the behavioral data, from the qualitative data, that initial creative time that then would go to soda, then in my opinion, then gets shorter. That's the time savings. But you can't just like slap new art on it because then you're running into, well, how much is this game going to cannibalize my first game? Are we actually going to be able to maintain market share if we do that? So I think that the savings are more specific than just like engines. I mean, I, to be fair, Phil, I make this comment all the time. Like when I talk about Nintendo's Breath of the Wild, I'm like, oh, they just used the same engine and they made Tears of the Kingdom. And I mean, that is a little bit of a throwaway. And I'm sure there's elements they absolutely took, but I think the iteration process would be the same. They probably saved a bit upfront on we know what works for this fantasy, for this immersion. So we're going to have savings on that. We don't need to bring people up to speed from nothing, but there's still probably significant work that went into that engine to either upgrade it or whatever they did to release it. Totally. It's, it's not control C, control V. Yes. And the tech debt, God, on League of Legends, and I know this is a little bit of a different story. When we were building TFT, we built Teamfight Tactics on top of the League of Legends engine, which was at the time, like 12 years old. And so the tech debt that we had to deal with, even though we had a starting place, was just really immense. And so that's the other piece that we have to consider too, is like what's gone out of date in taking anything from what's been done before and applying it forward. I bet inside of Riot on the Teamfight Tactics live team, there are probably still people griping at lunch or at bars about that decision to, <laughs> to use the old ass code base instead oh. of starting fresh. And then we put that on mobile. So the <laughs> mobile game that we launched with is a PC code. So imagine how challenging that has been to maintain all of those. Hopefully I, I don't I'm not breaking any secrets. Yeah. The maintenance overhead on that is not going to be delightful for anybody working on it, especially when we get to, you know, three years, four years from now. Just gets harder over time. For sure. All right. So last week we trialed quick hits. So far, it seems to be pretty positive reception. So we're going to do it again this week. And this is just short, very quick recaps of what happened in the news, not necessarily us dissecting it, but just keeping everyone informed. Jen. All right, here we go. Number one, DC Dark Legion game announced by Fun Plus and Weeby, Warner Brothers Interactive Entertainment, for release on Android and iOS in 2024. It's a strategy game where players can recruit their favorite DC superheroes and supervillains in a global multiplayer battle. Okay, it's a strategy game, everybody. Next, a new mobile game development studio, Closing Theory, has secured $2.3 million in investment in a round led by games investment firm A16Z. Their two games, House Rush and Neighborhood Rush, are for the 70 million plus people who browse Zillow just for fun, like my wife. House Rush itself is currently available to sign up for playtesting on iOS. Next, we have Activision Blizzard's Q2 23 financial results have revealed that Call of Duty Mobile, their handheld spinoff of the popular shooter franchise, 
has raked in $3 billion with a B in lifetime revenue since it launched in 2019. King's segment grew 9% year-on-year to a new quarterly record equivalent to 10% year-on-year growth on a consistent currency basis, driven by strong execution across Candy Crush Live operations and user acquisition. Guys, that's huge in the mobile industry. Wow. Good job. Good on you, Candy Crush team. Uh, Overwatch 2 is coming to Steam on August 10th. And Ethan, I think you had a comment. I know these are quick hits, but before we move on to the next one, I I have to pause here and issue another correction, or at least really emphasize this news story, because again, last episode or two weeks ago, or I can't even remember, but just in one of those endless Cress and Phil, like back and forth exhausting fights that they seem to get into, that, I mean, one, guys, just like listen to each other and take a breath. So it's exhausting. But Cress made a comment about Activision's mobile revenue. I think Phil was making the good point that like Microsoft, one of the things they value in this acquisition is the mobile revenue. And Cress made a very dismissive comment about Call of Duty's mobile revenue as though it was mice nuts. And like, look, dude, $3 billion, right? Even if that's a 50-50 split with Tencent, that's still $1.5 billion in top line revenue over the past, what, three years, four years, that's an incredible amount of top-line revenue, likely hundreds of millions in profit. Call of Duty Mobile is not mice nuts, officially not mice nuts. I think there's a bet. We have to go back and look in the show notes. I think there's a bet on, oh no, this is Diablo. I think the bet's on Diablo, my bad. Which had a great month. I know Eric is following Diablo's progress closely, but that was another thing in this quarterly earnings is Immortal got a nice bump from Diablo 4's numbers. Immortal got a bump. Diablo 4, I think, has sold through more units, more than any other Blizzard IP. So there's a lot of positive coming out of the earnings report. Here's a negative thing coming out of the earnings report is Microsoft has not released the Game Pass numbers. This is my PSA to Microsoft. It released the Game Pass numbers. You were doing this quarter after quarter. And when you hide things, we don't think they're positive. And I have a funny feeling there will appear next quarter after they have Activision stuff in the library. But Microsoft, come on, let's see what the numbers are. Is it growing or shrinking? Okay. Belgium expands tax shelter initiative to cover the game industry. The program will cover up to 33.7% gross of eligible production budget. So we might see that country increase in the amount of people making games there. Coming off our news last week about EA Sports FC 24, the Premier League has extended its multi-year partnership with EA Sports FC, who will continue as the lead partner and official licensee. Another excuse for me to talk about the Women's World Cup and the U.S. team winning their first game, go U.S. women. And Phil, by the way, Sweden won in your now home country. Congrats on that. Double win. And then finally, Pikmin 4 debuted number one in the U.K. physical charts. That's pretty funny. Selling 45% more than Pikmin 3 Deluxe did at launch. And Laura, I think you've been playing, right? I have been playing. It was between this and Final Fantasy 16. And I know I was going to play 16, but then I started playing this instead. So I just wanted to give my initial thoughts on Pikmin 4. It is a great improvement to Pikmin 3. While the IP and core gameplay are pretty much the same, it does not feel like a sequel. They've made enough changes. So in <laughs> throwback to before, it's not a reskin. It's as though I feel like they looked at Nintendo's best practices book and took most of it. Keep in mind, though, that Pikmin 3 was released 10 years ago in September 2013, so it's also been a while. 
super fast. What did they change and improve? They have a pet sidekick now. It's like a Pona, but better. And it has a small ability tree, something you can improve over time, solve the puzzles better. Speaking of puzzles, the puzzles are much better than they were from Pikmin 3. The solutions are less obvious, so it requires a little bit more thinking. You got to lean into more of your Pikmin's unique traits a bit more. They have a new Pikmin that lets you freeze water. Again, makes the puzzles more interesting. And they added something called Dandori Battle Mode, which I personally enjoyed because it tests the skill of any veteran producer or project manager. It, this mode basically, it tries your ability to plan and arrange your Pikmin to best optimize capturing items in a level. It's like sprint planning. How can I best use the team, their free time, no. their skills, and <laughs> what you're, they can accomplish really in a sprint? Gantt chart simulator. Just, just what I've been wanting to do in my free time. More Gantt Fun charts. game. There's a few misses. I think they didn't take advantage of multiplayer mode. There's no Nintendo online integration, so you can only play shoulder to shoulder. This is great for house shares and families, but not for people that want to play with people in other households like myself. In some, like I highly recommend this if you like puzzles or you want something to play as a family. It's been quite enjoyable. Awesome. That's a great reco for us. I've said in the DOF Slack, it's the summer of Mario over in the Levy house. We're having like nearly daily viewings of the Super Mario Brothers movie. And when my kids aren't playing Mario Kart, we're working together as a family through new Super Mario Bros. U Deluxe. But uh, glad to know that this is kind of a good option for family play. And I'll probably put it on the backlog once we work through all this Mario. So your family didn't do Barbie Heimer. I can I Barbie's can. <laughs> too old for my kids. My daughter is seven. She'll be eight soon. And like the common sense media recommendation was eleven or twelve. Like Oh, interesting. My five year old boy watches Barbie and loves it with his sister. And we were planning on taking them until we saw what the rating was. And the content is too old for them. Like it's too old for kids watching Barbie's dream house on Netflix, which is a real shame. It did, in fact, beat Mario in terms of box office, becoming the number one movie by revenue for any female director. And the opening weekend was bigger than Mario. And the Monday was actually probably one of the biggest Mondays in the box office. The only other bigger movie might have been Dark Knight back in the day on a Monday. So it killed it in terms of weekend revenue. So good on you, Barbie. That doesn't surprise me. The amount they were like pushing for that, pushing the IP, push like setting up the train way well advance of departure in terms of the movie coming out and getting people excited was awesome. It's just saying like good on Greta Gerwig for delivering the goods. You know, when none of us make movies, but I think we can all assume that adapting Barbie for the big screen is not an easy feat. No, it isn't. This was their third swing at it with two other actresses before Margot Robbie had come in. It is not an easy thing to take this IP and have it be as mass market and broadly appealing. And just every aspect of this has been a masterclass in creation and creativity in marketing in you know, what they've been doing in digital. I think, did you guys see there was a Barbie in Forza, like a Barbie Corvette in Forza? Like talk about crazy, but yeah, Barbie's been everywhere and well, I think it's wonderful. I am ready to be done with the pink. Pink is not my favorite color. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to you about Heroic Labs. 
Building a successful game is hard enough without worrying about building your own game tech as well. Heroic Labs provides a comprehensive game stack to help you get your game into market faster and scale beyond the competition. With their Unity game framework Hero, you can cut development and prototyping time in half and quickly add social, economy, and reward systems to grow your game. Satori, the live ops platform built specifically for the games industry, lets you run live events, A-B tests, deliver dynamic content to players, and always keep your game growing. Nakama, the industry's leading open source game server, lets you develop locally, providing all social and competitive features for your game, and then seamlessly transition to their Heroic Cloud hosted service and easily scale to meet the largest of audience demands. Find out how to get started at HeroicLabs.com. The games industry is experiencing unprecedented growth, with global revenues projected to reach a staggering $268 billion by 2025. But with more players than ever connecting across platforms and devices, how can your game stand out against the competition? AppsFlyer has created AppsFlyer for Games to help you unlock your player's true LTV by providing a wealth of game measurement solutions, unique industry insights, and proven best practices. Our dedicated hub is packed with innovative products, industry partnerships, and unrivaled expertise to ensure your game brand adapts and thrives. We understand that every game is unique and AppsFlyer's data-driven insights allow us to cater to your specific needs. We know that in today's evolving landscape, staying ahead of the curve is crucial. Trust in AppsFlyer for games to guide you through this exciting journey. We have the tools, the knowledge, and the passion to help you succeed in this ever-expanding landscape. Together, we'll conquer new worlds, both real and fantasy, break records, and create gaming experience that leave a lasting impact. Get in touch with AppsFlyer for games today and unleash your game's true potential. AppsFlyer for games, supercharging the gaming landscape. All right, first topic. Phil, tell us about Roblox and BattleBit. I wrote a piece this week called Roblox's BattleBit Failure and the Adopt Me Ripoff. So I was revisiting this piece a long time ago when Joe Rogan joined Spotify. And it was an interesting piece because it argued that Joe Rogan had made a huge mistake and that he had taken the easy paycheck. And if he had sat down and he had built his own business, he would have been able to make a lot more money than siding with Spotify. Poor Joe Rogan. Only $100 million. What a, what a massive $200 million. Oh, God. He's left so much money on the table. Really suffering. His children's 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 won't have enough to endow a library at Harvard now. So at the same time I'm reading this, I'm also reading <laughs> a great piece that was written by David Taylor, who sometimes writes for Novik, and I was also at Super Social Roblox Studio, really tracking the revenues of individual developers on the platform. And he was able to calculate that AdoptMe Studio was doing probably around 70 million per year. And so I was trying to put these two together and I was like, okay, should AdoptMe actually go off platform? Is this something that can happen? Because one of the things that you see on the Roblox platform is that they take a 76% revenue cut. That is unbelievable. So for every $4 someone spends in your experience, three of those dollars are going to go to Roblox. And of course, you have to consider it once again on a marginal basis. And the big thing that Roblox covers is not only payments, customer service, all the usual garbage you get with the platform, but they also cover OCore service costs, which can be significant for a simultaneous online server-based game. But with that being said, 76% is a lot to cut. Not only the server costs, you don't need to hire server engineers. You only have to do client-side development on Roblox. So that is also a very significant savings on your dev costs. Super real savings. So again, 76% sounds like a big number, but when you break it down, you know, it's probably closer to maybe 40 or 50% on a marginal basis. So I think the question here is like, should AdoptMe go off platform? Would they have enough of an IP hold to get rid of that platform share and perhaps launch a mobile skew? 
why not launch a mobile SKU? And Roblox allows you to do this. So when you go onto the platform, you earn the ability to own your own IP. You own it yourself. I think that's one option for Adopt Me to do it. It's a huge gamble. Again, you don't necessarily need to cut out your Roblox SKU, but why not see if you can't make something on mobile happen? It seems like it'd be a low marginal cost. Maybe it's that reskin. Maybe it's not as quite as low cost as we suspect. So I think that's one part of this is let's think about Adopt Me and whether or not they can do an off-platform SKU and whether or not they'd be successful. I think the other part of this is what would you need to go on platform to Roblox? So Roblox is sitting at 350 million active users. It's an unbelievable number. It's more than the size of Steam, Xbox Live, and PlayStation Network combined. It's, it's an unbelievable level of scale. And so if you're BattleBit, you know, the game that recently came out on Steam that is kind of a copy of Battlefield and is low poly res, why not go on to Roblox and get after those 350 million users? And there was some really good pushback to this. You know, one of the things that David mentioned is, you know, perhaps the Roblox engine can't handle 256 players. They can match. That's certainly true. But I would at least challenge Roblox that the type of experiences you want on the platform, it should be easier for other developers to create a Roblox SKU. And so if you remember a while back when the Wii was out, it was such a different platform than the traditional Xbox and PlayStation that a lot of the times developers had to create unique SKUs just for the Wii. I believe Call of Duty actually did this back in the day. They had a special Wii edition of Call of Duty. So I guess I, I would make the same argument here, which is that you know if you're a major developer, I think one of the things you start to think about or should start to think about as Roblox continues to grow in popularity is first of all, do you go off platform and start to think about, hey, can I distribute this on Steam? Can I distribute this on mobile and keep my Roblox SKU? And if you're looking at Roblox, should you make a Roblox SKU? Does it make sense to go out there and make a port of BattleBit for Roblox? And so I think those are the two things I've gone into this thinking about. And I've come out and thinking about kind of what is Roblox's strategy going forward. I think there's a lot they should do to kind of connect the tissue between their own engine and perhaps porting something to Unity or porting something into the Roblox engine. Let me tell you why this is uninformed. <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to chime in on the technical again. Roblox very unique in its ability to write code that is pushed over the air, write game logic that's pushed over the air to every platform and device it's on without a client-side update, right? So what you're doing is you're not actually writing C++ code, you're writing in Lua, you're doing scripting in a format that the app can ingest and turn into new game experiences and game logic without a client-side update. And that's what allows thousands of developers to upload new stuff and it be available, right? So Roblox is not a cross-platform. Nothing you do in Unity can be ported into Roblox. And everybody working on Roblox, working in Lua scripting, is not ready to make the jump to Unity or Unreal Engine. So like, these are not transferable. T totally, and I'm not suggesting that they are, which is exactly why I suggested that they should consider a Unity plugin, or they should work on a translation. It should perhaps be like Rosetta, which we see sometimes on other platforms translating between different languages. But again, I agree with you, it would be pushed to the level of Roblox to come up with a platform solution. If you're doing BattleBit and you want to make a Roblox version of it, you're starting from the ground up. Maybe you can reuse the art. I don't know enough to answer that. And similarly, if you're doing Adopt Me or Twilight Daycare and you want to build a game outside of Roblox in Unity or Unreal, you're starting from scratch. That's exactly why Roblox should consider building a solution for this. I think it's within their interest to do this. I had initial comments that I was previously thought about, but the first thing that comes to mind, I'm thinking a little bit about TikTok, about social media, and then 
general platforms, I wonder if the battle of who's going to become the best place to make content is going to be how appealing they can make it. So if something like Roblox is going to be just making it more and more enticing for people to develop on their platform. I, I don't know. The first thing that comes to mind is like, this is the metaverse. This is how the metaverse begins because you start making content for this platform. And same thing with TikTok. And the reason I think of TikTok is from what I read is that creators find the TikTok tools the easiest to use, which keeps them on the platform making for TikTok and then distributing on other social media platforms. But that means TikTok gets the engagement metrics. So they benefit the most from that. Anyway random thought with this, I mean, reading, like, I thought 30% was high, but like 70, 75% super high. And the first thing that came to mind was like homeowners association. This is like a value problem for those outside the U S a homeowners association is a service fee for homes. And the question you have to ask yourself, is the fee worth the benefits you'll receive? And the answer is going to be super different depending on who you are and what you aim to achieve. So in how it applies to Roblox, thinking like if you're a hobbyist, this is great for them. This is a very appealing platform. You have tools, you have everything you need. As Ethan explained, like it's really simple scripting. You don't have to worry about much. Money is probably not the most important thing to you. If you're indie, maybe this is a great place to start and build your gaming CV. You want to break into games. You can say you've built these little experiences. You're not going to have ownership and there'll be limits to what you can do, but maybe that's fine for you. I think where you need to start thinking about is you're limited to the Roblox audience. I had a quick peek, 67% of Roblox users are under 16. So unless you're a company that's making games for this demographic, I'm not sure this would make perfect sense. However, if you're making kids content, like that's what you're doing already, then, then absolutely maybe having a Roblox presence would be great for building awareness and just building audience. Yeah. If you didn't say it, I was going to, which is the audience is predominantly kids or younger kids and monetization is a little bit difficult. So, you, you know, you talked about the rev share earlier, you know, imagine getting a rev share out of, you know, an audience that is primarily children. And so what to do, you do ads, right? Cause you know, advertising to kids, you know, that's also has issues in itself, but what Roblox has decided to do and they announced it a few weeks ago is they are setting up an ads platform called the partner program. And here, the way that they are thinking about ads and probably better said as sponsorships or partnerships is they're developing these immersive experiences. So when you go in and you play inside of a different brand's kind of world, you're not just being shown a traditional ad video like we would all see, whether either be on social media or TV, you're engaging in an immersive experience that is sponsored by certain companies. And so there's a lot of agencies and developers that are actually focused on this side of the business, which is developing these immersive experiences in these worlds where kids can come. Well, I say kids, but everyone can come and play. And that's a little bit of another way to monetize within the platform. And you know, we'll talk a little bit more about it another time, but Unreal Engine for Fortnite, so UEFN, is also a great opportunity for developers to look at if they want to build inside of a platform they want to reduce some of their costs, then that platform reaches a little bit of an older audience with, you know, better art styles. Well, I shouldn't say better, it's just differentiated art styles, right? Because you've got the blocky look of Roblox and on UEFN, you can do a little bit more realistic play for a little bit of an older audience. So I think those are just things to look at too for developers as they're considering, you know, do I do something big on my own or do I leverage one of these, you know, metaverse platforms, so to speak? 
And that to me is the play for Roblox too, because the Unreal editor for Fortnite is going to put pressure on them. Despite the fact that Unreal Engine for Fortnite has a different coding language, I'm sure it's going to be easy to port projects when they're ready to the proper Unreal Engine and publish them as full titles. So if Roblox is not going to pick up on this, I know that Unreal is at least going to put some competitive pressure for them to try to open up this platform. It's been their moat for a long time, and I think they're going to have to open this up to stay competitive with them because Fortnite is coming, and they're going to come after the demo that they're most interested in going into, which is teenagers. That's where Fortnite is right now, and I think those heads are going to clash very soon. All right, moving on to, I was thinking like this would be Roblox with eggs, but it's not quite. It's a platform with eggs. Phil. It's Fall Guys with eggs or Stumble Guys with eggs. eggs. Stumble Guys with eggs. Yeah. Stumble eggs. (laughs) So the piece that we're referring to was a wonderful, I would call it an investigative journalism piece done in the Financial Times. It was about Eggy Party. So NetEase's Eggy Party, again, that is their version of Stumble Guys or Fall Guys has reached 30 million daily active users. And of course, this has intensified the competition between Tencent and NetEase. It is right now only available in China and Taiwan. It launched last year. It is one of NetEase's first big casual hit games. The game has also been particularly popular among young women. The Financial Times piece goes into a little bit of drama with NetEase's CEO, William Ding, who is personally involved in Aggie Party's development. He sees it as leveraging a platform for generative AI tools for user-generated obstacle courses. Super interesting that Eggy Party allows you to create content inside of the mobile app. You can create your own levels. They were ahead of Fall Guys in implementing this. And of course, Stumble Guys still does not have this. So this is big for Tencent because they're worried about NetEase having an increase in stock price in the last year while Tencent is down. Netty seems to be navigating the Chinese licensing system uh, pretty easily, more so than Tencent was at the time. And there also is some comments in the piece about the culture that is within Tencent and within Netty's. So Netty's is known for a free whimbling culture that promotes new game ideas, while Tencent is seen as over-reliant on monetizing popular but aging titles. And of course, Tencent is developing its own multiplayer obstacle course game. Right now, it is just called Playground. So I'm sure we'll see that either this year or next. The more I watch these, because this one was unavailable in the US, as Phil said, it's like this amazing combination between Fall Guys and Fortnite. I don't want to say they're all similar, but they're also, they also kind of are similar. And in my mind, I'm trying to figure out if I was going to be betting, which one do I think would become the biggest competitor? I would drive the biggest contender. And the first thing, user-generated content is going to be key with this. Those game modes make a huge difference in whether or not it, it, this game is going to engage. And it has to be the quality of the game mode, whether it's fun, and then the variety. They have to keep adding new ones. If they can find a way to make AI, like create a fun obstacle course or a fun game mode, I think that would potentially give it an edge or be a wonderful partner to user-generated content. Do we know if Eggy Party is going to be released cross-platform? I would absolutely hope so. It'd be a real shame if they didn't do that. I mean, there's a huge, I think, PC audience for an experience like this, particularly with the UGC, but I do not believe they've confirmed it yet. And when you go to their webpage, they only offer Google Play and App Store links right now. So since Cress isn't here, he has kid stuff this week, by the way, I'll throw an F word out. This is fucking cute. This game, (laughs) like the art style is adorable. Everything about it, I can see why it has a female appeal. It's adorable. However, so let's think about the US market or Western market and Stumble Guys and what Stumble Guys is doing. So mostly younger players play this game. You know, it's 
today's show is all about the younger audience and what they're playing. So I think there's a little bit of a switching cost that they might encounter if they do come to the West. You know, every young person, if you're 12, you're playing this game, all of your friends are playing this game, and this is the it thing that you and your social group are playing. So I'm having a hard time seeing what the key differentiator of Iggy Party is. I mean, the art style in Stumble Guys is fairly cute. So they're really going to have to figure out how they want to take the Stumble Guys audience, reduce those switching costs, and bring over the audience from Stumble Guys to Eggy Party. So it's not impossible to have that done, especially because we know that they'll put a lot of money behind it. NetEase doesn't have a huge title success in the Western market on mobile. And can you guys think of anything that they have? I think it's mostly core games. So you're right, this is the first casual title. So they have a little bit of an uphill battle in figuring out how to attack that market. But they have a game that looks to have, you know, all of the qualities of maybe taking on what Scopely has with Stumble Guys. It'll be an interesting fight. You know, I just tweens love eggs. It's marketing <laughs> 101, right? Isn't this a well-known tweens love eggs? Uh, absolutely. If we were to do the art <laughs> test and say, hey, what theme would you most want to engage a game? Eggs. Eggs. Cute little blocky guys. Guns. It's why everyone's yeah. wearing Humpty Dumpty shirts this summer. Aren't you glad I'm here, Laura, to make these amazing egg-based jokes? Well, to be fair, I mean, you're giving me insight into like the teenage, what they're wearing and stuff that I would have no idea about. Otherwise. No one is wearing a Humpty Dumpty shirt. <laughs> okay. do, do we know if the eggs break when you die in the game? Because if they don't do that, like they need to get on that ASAP. And squish everywhere. Hey game devs, are you tired of dealing with complicated payment processes all over the world? Well, Exola's got your back with Exola PayStation. It has a simple, user-friendly interface that makes it easy for players to pay for your games and in-game content however they want. And because the Exola PayStation user interface is adaptive and accessible on smartphones, tablets, and PCs, your players will have a seamless experience no matter their preferred device. Players can save their favorite payment methods for future purchases, and on mobile, even charge purchases directly to their phone care your bill. On the back end, you can customize your checkout with game-specific integration options like sidebars and iframes, as well as change colors, fonts, and images to make PayStation look and feel like a natural part of your game. Ready to see Exola's PayStation in action? Visit exola.pro slash payments dash DOF or visit the link in this podcast description. This episode is brought to you by Data AI. Yes, they were called App Annie back in the day, but let's not talk about that. Let's talk about how Data AI is the first company to combine consumer and market data with the power of artificial intelligence. And Data AI does this to unlock unique consumer and market insight to accelerate competitive advantages across all digital channels worldwide. What we here at Deconstructor Fund really like is Data AI's Game IQ tool. It's this fantastic market and competitive intelligence tool for mobile gaming that allows publishers to really get to the feature level of a game without doing a full-on deconstruction first. Using this tool, your team can quickly tie features to performance KPIs, which will help you make difficult roadmap decisions. It's also a great tool to identify hidden growth opportunities as you can analyze games on a scale. As you well know, there are hundreds of thousands of gaming apps in the App Store and thousands of new mobile games released each month. And while we don't want you to stop reading and listening to Deconstructor Fun, the fact is we can't cover it all. With Data AI, and especially their Game IQ tool, you'll be able to efficiently determine what features provide a lift, make roadmap decisions based on accurately modeled expected outcomes, discover how competitors lifted performance through feature releases, benchmark performance against your competitors, 
focus with confidence on the highest potential genre for a new game release. We here at Deconstructor Fun are huge fans of Data AI, so what are you waiting for? Go to Data AI and try the service for free. Let's move on to Battle Pass. Yes. All right. So I have been really interested in a couple of articles from our friends at Liquid and Grit around the idea of Battle Pass because it's also been the 10th anniversary of the Battle Pass creation from our friends at Valve. Phil's also looking for ways to get ready for an upcoming free-to-play fight with Eric Kress, and so coming to a pod near you very soon. So we wanted to discuss a little bit about Battle Passes, talk about some key learnings, you know, just share what's the state of the Battle Pass in free-to-play right now. So like I said, check out Liquid and Grit if you want. They have a, quite a few articles that go into this. So let me just summarize a little bit of the takeaway about some of the categories, how to think about a Battle Pass, what are different ways to approach it, whether you're a mid-core game or a casual game, because spoiler alert, they are very different. So the first point to think about when creating your Battle Pass or evaluating how it's doing is to look at your pricing length tiers and bundles. So in this category, what we see is that core apps tend to go longer and be more expensive. And for casual games, they tend to be shorter and a little bit cheaper. Even in the games that I play in the casual space as a player, I see $10 versions for a month or $5 versions for a month. And so there's no one way that really works. And so it really sets you up for a lot of A-B testing. Casual and casino apps actually are where we see a lot of different trials and some of those even going to one week or two weeks. So the second category would be bundles, perks, and free promotions. So tier skips, I see a lot in the games that I play. And then a premium pass that gives you boosts for engagement, I see a lot as well. In secondary progressions, so think about these as like a sticker collection. So if you get different aspects throughout the pass, that allows you to complete a secondary sticker collection that gives you another bonus. That's an interesting way to add things into the battle pass that give you something else to do when your game doesn't have a lot of systems or economy to fuel the battle pass. Level requirements. So this was interesting. In many games that I play, I haven't been offered a chance to even engage in the battle pass until I play enough of the game I'm retaining to even be offered that. So think about, you know, maybe there's a battle pass for a starter pack that allows you to keep early engagement and retention going. So the rewards themselves, they're often, you know, customization, but what we see in casual and casino apps, they focus on functional rewards like boosts and perks. So that seems to be what drives that audience a little bit more than the kick-ass horse skin that you might get in Diablo. Phil, you're going to talk about that later. So let me just hit the last one which is a season long perk. This is a big deal. And you know, try not to F with this too much or you might get some backlash with your community. So offering that perk at the end of the season, whether it be in Fortnite, which I've seen many times, that can lead to higher engagement because you wanna get to the end of that pass to get that perk. On TFT, we really capitalized a lot on battle passes. It was one of the most monetizing things that we did within the entire game. And we wanted to make sure that cosmetic item at the end was really killer. And so that's just a quick story of what worked for us. But Phil, what else have you seen work? I know you've got a lot. You're just chomping at the bit here. So it's been a lot slower than I expected. But back in April 2021, I wrote this piece called The Economics of Battle Pass are Broken. Let's fix it. And I think we're finally starting to see developers take a stab at it. 
And so the central benchmark I used in that piece was ADMC or average daily monetization cap. And so what you're trying to do to think about the monetization depth of a pass is take the amount of money it costs to purchase the pass. So usually about $10 and then multiplying it by the number of tiers and how much a tier skip costs. And then what you do is you divide that by the number of days in a season. And that technically is the max amount of money you could spend in a given day. And one of the things that you can do to, to tweak with that model is you can say, okay, well, we might add in more tiers. So instead of hundred tiers, we'll go to 200 tiers. So there's more of an opportunity to spend. Or, hey, we might increase the length of the pass or, excuse me, the fixed entry cost of the pass. So rather than $10, it could be $20. The solution I'm starting to see developers really circle in on is actually changing the denominator. So reducing the amount of time a pass lasts for. So instead of four months, it might be three months, it might be two months. Or in the case of Marvel Snap, which I think did the best job at this, it's actually one month. So Marvel Snap will do, I believe it's a 40 or 50 tier pass, still $10 one month. They see monetization spikes every time they release the pass. Call of Duty has also been super effective at this. They've gone to two months. So again, when you think about the course of a year, you know, if you're Call of Duty and you're thinking about potentially doing a pass a quarter, if you go down to two months, you can do six passes a year rather than four passes a year. So there's just a lot more opportunity to spend. We've seen the black cell idea from Call of Duty and to catch people up on that, it is basically a additional fixed fee that you can pay when the battle pass comes out for Call of Duty. You can get some additional rewards. You've seen Fortnite tweak it a little bit. So you have the ability now in Fortnite to choose from a series of rewards before moving on to another page of series of rewards. It's not that big of a change. It's really just allowing you to order the rewards on the pass in the order you would like to have them, but you still need to collect all of them. It also lets you skip things. I mean, it's really cool. You can skip things you don't want. You only have to buy everything on a page if you want the milestone reward at the end of the page. But if you're not interested in a character, you can completely skip their page. The interesting thing is really what mobile has done with Battle Pass, because they're in a very different place than HD, which faces these really high capital requirements to get out of skin. It's really expensive, but mobile has taken a really different view of this. And I think, Laura, you've been looking into Candy Crush, which has a new model of Battle Pass out as well. Before you go to Candy Crush, mobile versus HD, like the cost to get out a piece of content in Call of Duty mobile is still incredibly high. It doesn't matter the platform, it matters the fidelity of your experience, right? Like getting out a new skin in Call of Duty is still the same pipeline as in getting it out in the HD version, probably slightly lower fidelity, but like much, much more expensive than say getting an alt skin of a 2D spine animated character in one of the mobile RPGs I've worked on. Sure, but mobile passes don't tend to have specific rewards like cosmetics. Like I agree in the case of Call of Duty, but Fortnite has specific skins that are at specific tiers, whereas you look at a lot of mobile passes, it's boosters, right? It's cheap marginal content Uh, that's easy to produce. Depends game to game. Depends on the game. I mean, Stumble Guys gives you skins. (laughs) That's completely fair. I would say most of the passes I've seen tend to be zero marginal cost content. Like all the Supercell ones, at least, are almost always zero marginal cost content. It's almost exclusively chests, which are normal rewards that they just give out. They're just sourcing you more of them, or in a lot of match threes, it's boosters. But yeah, there definitely is some like specific cosmetic content on mobile. Yeah, you don't have skins in Candy Crush. Yeah, Playrix gives like pets and outfits, and then the other people started giving pets and outfits too. But yeah, there's more. Okay, so back to Soda. So one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about Battle Passes today was because of Candy Crush Soda's new take on their reward pass. Now, I haven't seen this done before. Anyone correct me if I'm wrong, Phil or any listeners. I haven't seen companies or studios give players an initial choice of pass, big, medium, or small. And then within those, then you have your two versions of free and deluxe. 
So in this update, it looks like they created basically six potential reward passes that you could play through. To me, I looked at this and was like, I wonder if the hypothesis is if giving players the agency to self-classify going to generate higher engagement and spend. If I was writing the experiment, that's what I would have the hypothesis be. It went live beginning of June. It looks like it had a small revenue spike about 30 days later. This pass was about a month. I would ballpark this at anywhere between maybe they saw maybe two to 6% uplift. Again, there was a little bump in revenue from data AI. But to be honest, I'm so excited to see this because I don't think we casual has dug deep enough into what else can be done with battle passes or reward passes. I think there's a whole lot more we can do. And I'm really glad to see the, the soda team experimenting with it. Yeah, I want to plus one that. I think we all know that it can do wonderful things for both monetization, retention, engagement. You know, maybe we're not seeing a huge hit because these players tend to engage and retain a lot. And it's still monetizing a casual audience can be a little bit more difficult. But, you know, going back to your question around premium tiers of battle passes, I have seen that happen in many of the MOBAs, the mobile MOBAs that I used to watch. So I think it happens a little bit more in the core space. Phil, Ethan, have you seen other games that do different levels of premium tiers? None come to mind immediately, but what I've seen, uh, especially like Lilith's games and others, King of Fighters All-Stars and other like Eastern Gacha games do really effectively is free tier of event pass rewards on one side of the screen and then premium tier on the other and giving away a tremendous amount of value in terms of hard currency on the premium side. And what's happened is that they're very effective at creating conversion as you get near the end of the event, because you've already earned all this stuff. And so in your mind, you're like, oh, if I spend $25 right now to unlock this pass, I get $300 worth of hard currency plus this character, this gotcha pass I want to open gotcha 50 times. So like, that's a really effective way of splitting the premium and the free. That is, it's gotten me to spend a bunch of times. Yeah, the Clash Royale system and UI UX approach of presenting Battle Pass with free on one side, premium on the other. A number of casual games, you know, whether it be Royal Match or I can't believe I'm going to admit this, I'm playing this game called Gossip Harbor really brilliant and I'm addicted and I'm spending money and I'm embarrassed to kind of say that as I guess I'm a casual player. I guess I should just admit it that I'm a casual You're a super player. Hardcore Welcome casual. to the dark side. No, I, am, I am the it's hardest the great core. Side. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, but I love mid-core experiences too. But that presentation, so Gardenscapes I know goes horizontally. Some games go vertically. I know that when we were developing that for TFT, we were looking at both and trying to figure out which would be best for our audience. And we decided on the horizontal approach because many more of the mid-core games offer it in that horizontal approach versus the vertical approach. So we were trying to stay in line with what players who play other game genres might expect. So that's something to consider as you are developing your battle pass or upgrading your system is how you present the information is also very important for your players and your audience. Jen, to go back to one point you made about starter battle passes or battle passes for new players, this is something I've seen be very effective in a lot of Eastern gotcha games is that when you join, you'll get a special, it might be, you know, wrapped as a battle pass or starter mission, starter quests, but a special quest progression 
only available to new players with really outsized rewards. And this does two things very effectively. One is that when it's well implemented, it trains you in how you're supposed to play the game. So it basically steps you up in training you on your daily habit of all the activities that you're supposed to do every day as a starter player. And the second thing is that the older your game gets, the harder it is for starter players to catch up or have an effective experience when they're playing against people who've accrued so much value over time. So you're able to, once you have the pass or the mission set up, you can just ratchet up the rewards on it over time, refresh the rewards every three months or six months so that the starter players are getting new, better stuff without updating the underlying quest structure or content. And so it's really, in my mind, a best practice to offer starter players, especially as your game gets kind of long in the tooth, as it kind of has benefits on multiple angles. Yeah, you jogged my memory because we did exactly this on The Walking Dead Road to Survival, Even when I was working on it, I mean, it must be five years ago at this point, the game was old. The game was in year three. And we had the hardest time doing acquisition campaigns because the elder games and playing in the elder game, you know, weekend event, you couldn't compete. And so we had to do these catch up mechanics. So you're right. I've actually totally forgot. I've worked on games that have done this and (laughs) seen it to be super successful. Thank you. All right, last topic for today. We're ending with a dinosaur shooter. Take it away, Phil. This one is wild. So Exoprimal has attracted 1 million players to the title, and they have issued a free skin to celebrate. This was launched on July 14th across PlayStation 5 and PlayStation 4, which is a pretty interesting strategy. It's PlayStation 4 is still shipping, still selling some units. Xbox Series X and S, Xbox One as well, and PC. The game success has been partially attributed, and again, this is from a press release, to its inclusion in Xbox Game Pass. I have taken a look at the Steam numbers here, and you know, I don't know if I can do a good Eric impression, but this sounds like a bullshit press release. <laughs> the Steam numbers are not so great. We're looking at perhaps right now around 1,000 CCU, so maybe we're talking about 20,000 DAU if you're in a really good place and you're rounding up. The other piece that's been really disappointing is looking at the Steam sales which seem to be around 60,000 units. Not quite sure what they would be on PlayStation or what they would be on Xbox, but I'm hard-pressed to believe that this has been a surefire seller. And I think this also highlights what Eric has been saying around Xbox Game Pass and being on a subscription. You have a lot of content in that pass chasing very few dollars per month. Actually getting revenue out of the subscription and taking up playtime or earning hours that you get paid out for is very difficult. The ways you really make money on Game Pass is actually selling full units once it's in Game Pass, or at least trying to get some MTX on top of it. And of course, like this is a premium plus title. It is not a free-to-play title. It is one of Eric's favorite. So let's see, you know, if they had a million players on Xbox Game Pass, let's see what the MTX is. And I'm sure Capcom will issue another press release if it starts to sell more units or starts to make some more in-game sales. I don't know if I can comment too much on all those numbers, but what I do have to say is I really like the idea of a community reward for the game hitting a milestone, you know, and that was the lead in the press release, right? Like everyone gets a skin because the game hit a million players. So here's my plea to game teams. I have found this to be an incredibly successful thing when you go and you work with the game teams and you bank in really important skins or cosmetics or things that the player community will like. And then you use that for 
significant milestones that the game might have to get press or for a featuring that you might have with Apple and Google if you're on mobile. So if your rant is true about the numbers, then there's not much of a reason for the game to get any press. But the fact that they gave away this skin, got them this PR article, which landed them this coverage, which is why we're talking about it on a podcast. So you know, just a little plea to support the marketing team. I think this is a good one. Jen, every year when I was on Battlefield, usually a month before launch, a group of brand people would come over to my desk and clamor for cosmetics that they wanted to give away for free. And they always want the high tier shit because they know it'll drive the biggest numbers. And I can count on one hand the number of times that same brand marketing team has also come to me with an attribution model that tells me that giving away this cosmetic will make more money for the game than selling the cosmetic within the store. I would challenge brand to come up with an attribution model for this. What makes this make sense? And true, in this case, it was a single cosmetic. Sure, it it probably passed a cost-benefit test. But I guess the question I would ask you, Jen, is should they have amped up the reward even more? Should they give away more of these? Should they do one every week? How aggressive should you get with this if this is an effective strategy? How do you run it into the ground, I guess, is another way to put it. Oh, dude, you're killing me. Listen, there's a balance. Just like in anything, the fact that they came to you a month before, that is not cool. I would not support a team doing that. You have to sit down with the development team at the beginning of the project, months and months in advance, and map out what you think the key milestones are going to be and what your strategy is for doing that. And like you said, what is your revenue model? Remember that attribution can be very difficult. So for a PR article or for getting promotion in the Google Play or the iOS App Store, you know those can lead to certain benefits. It is harder and harder to actually attribute things. But I think if you work on it together and you figure out the right cadence, and it doesn't always have to be the highest tier premium stuff, you can find other things that really do matter. And it doesn't always have to be a skin. It can be a set of boosters. It could be something else. But I think the key is going to be looking at what can you give the community. And, you know, like last week we talked about TikTok and doing those filters or doing different things. What is it that you might be able to give as community rewards that can help you as well? not just, you know, in a sense, an old school skin. I think we're going to have to rethink what it is that we can give to our players that really are going to help drive KPIs. Because maybe I'm outdated in saying that it's PR and the app stores. That's what I've done in the past. Maybe we actually need to think more about social and TikTok and UGC and community and Discord is the next iteration of that. Any other final thoughts on dinosaur shooter game and community skins? This one's a lot of fun, by the way. I actually played this game and it is batshit crazy. Let me tell you, you're a human that goes into exoskeletons through portals to defend against dinosaurs who are also coming through portals. There's like a weird Power Ranger AI unit, which just shows up and sometimes delivers narrative. And then other times you get to play as a dinosaur, because I guess that was a fantasy that probably showed up in some CI tests is why can't I play as a dinosaur? This game is fucking absolutely bonkers. And the other thing they get right is a suit animation that you saw in Anthem. There was a leaked report a while back that Patrick Soderlund probably spent a lot of money trying to get that Anthem animation down. And it looks like this team has, has something comparable. This game is worth checking out, especially if it's in Game Pass. G- give it a whirl. It is batshit crazy. It is made by a Japanese studio, of course. I feel like it sounds like it could be a fun dinosaur game mode and eggy party. I'm down for that crossover. That is a mix-up. Mash-up right there, Laura. I love it. And that's all we have this week. See y'all next week. You did it. You made it to the end of the episode. As a fan of the show, it would help us out if you subscribe and leave us a review on the podcast service of your choice. More importantly, are you a member of the Deconstructor Fun Slack group? 
If you have five years or more of games industry experience, go to deconstructoroffun.com slash slack and apply to join. Join the games industry's best professional community filled with peers always willing to lend a hand. Or subscribe to our newsletter to get all the latest insights from the Deconstructor of Fun content creators. Thanks for listening.